Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Do you ever wonder how human remains are found from a cold case that might be years or even decades old? Sometimes it's because of people like my guest today. Clark Davenport is a forensic geophysicist and also one of the founding members of NecroSearch International. Today, we're going to talk about forensic geophysics and some of the techniques that are involved with it. And we'll also talk about NecroSearch International, how it started, and some of the cases they've been involved with. All right, here's Clark Davenport. You know, we kind of connected on, on LinkedIn, and I was looking at your your, your job profile, your, your profession. And it's, this was something I'd never heard of before. So I wanted to, wanted to chat with you on the podcast and, and find out more about it. So you are a geophysicist. I'm a geophysicist by degree and by training. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's start there then. What, what is geophysics and, and how did you discover this field? Geophysics is the, uh, it's a study of the earth. Uh, I like to say the difference between geophysics and geology is that geophysicists were able to pass mathematics. And in that sense, we we apply forces to the earth or read natural forces from the earth to determine what is in the interior of the earth. You can start very deep like oil, and you can move up through the spectrum to like what I do. It's a a science that's been around for... uh, really quite a, quite a number of years. You, you can go back to the 1920s for oil uh, prospecting. You can go back earlier than that for uh, using magnetics to determine different things, just the magnetic field of the earth. So it's, to me, it's a very interesting field. Yeah, it, it does sound interesting. I've, I've read a little bit about it. And so what's, what was the training like to become a geophysicist? I, I went to a school here in Colorado, and I was able to cram four years into five uh, because it's a pretty rigid program. And it, it's based a lot on physics, geology, and mathematics. The basic, the basic thing we're trying to determine is without drilling holes in the earth, what is going on inside the earth. And that includes the field of seismology, which is earthquake. It gets into uh, plate tectonics. But that's not the area that I specialize in. Okay. So the area that you do specialize in, it's, so it's forensic geophysics. Uh, yes. As you were going through, you know, your, your, your program then, did you always intend to go into the forensic aspect or did that kind of come later? Absolutely not. It came uh, later and by pure accident. I, I started out in oil, oil field exploration, or sorry, oil well exploration. Okay. And move, move from there into mining and then finally into engineering, siting uh, of large, complex structures, bridges, dams, hydroelectric plants, uh, nuclear plants, using geophysics to determine what the geology was under these sites, how stable they were. Is it similar technology then that you use in, in a forensic setting? Very similar, which just a matter, matter of uh, scale and magnitude. You know, whereas if you're looking for an oil well, you may be looking 23,000 feet down. If you're looking now for what I'm looking for, you may be looking at the most uh, 20 feet down. So then let's let's get into a little bit about how you do that that looking. Then sure. you've been you've been using remote sensing technology since the mid 1980s. Yes, I'd like to learn a, a little bit more about some of these technologies because it seems like you've sort of pioneered a few of them well thank you i appreciate that and and it's it's nice because there's a lot of uh people and in companies that are getting involved in this now and basically what we're doing with remote sensing technologies and i'll get into those in just a minute is is assisting law enforcement on finding in our case we look for the uh we look for hidden evidence or more specifically uh clandestine graves which would contain the remains of, of murder victims. And there, there's a number of ways we can do that. Uh, we start non-intrusively with air photos, and then we end up with doing uh, the actual geophysics, which can range from uh, a, a magnetic survey down to ground-penetrating radar. Okay, you mentioned the, the, air, the air survey. So you are you like chartering a plane for this, or how, how does that work? No, no. Uh, we uh, 
we've been able to acquire any number of aerial photographs. For instance, right now I'm working on a, a very cold case in Tennessee that goes back to 1941. And I can get aerial photographs from 1937 and 1941, which span the time uh, that the individual uh, was was hidden or was buried. And then I can look at changes over time in those. And we've pioneered, when I say we, I'm talking about a group called NecroSearch. Uh, we have pioneered some techniques on uh, using aerial photographs that span the time of an incident. If we know about when the body was uh, or a person was buried or went missing, we we can uh, digitize aerial photographs, existing aerial photographs, and uh, look at changes that happen between the time intervals of the photographs. It's very helpful. So what type of changes are you looking for? Changes in vegetation, uh, specifically, if you disturb the ground, you disturb vegetation. We've seen changes in vegetation that have been close to 10 years old. Uh, we're, we're looking for um, soil changes, just anything. And we also look at uh, you know ways into an area, ways out of an area, dirt roads, tracks, or whatever. Did, they, did the perpetrator carry a body in, or were they able to drive to an area and then move the body? What was the weather at that time? Uh, it just gets um, this gets pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I deal with the uh, remote sensing, the ground penetrating radar, magnetics, electromagnetics, and metal detectors. Uh, can you tell me about the ground penetrating radar? Yeah. How, how is that used? I will say that ground penetrating radar is one of the most dangerous tools that law enforcement has. And I say that for two reasons. Ground penetrating radar puts a signal into the earth, and you drag an antenna across the earth, emits a signal into the earth, and the signal returns from the earth. And you're looking for changes within that vertical section under the antenna. The depth of penetration can range from maybe a foot down to uh, 40, 50 feet. It depends on the soil, the amount of clay in the soil. I say it's the most dangerous tool for a number of reasons. Number one, typically people that are using it aren't trained in either data collection, quality control, or interpretation. But number two, ground penetrating radar does not detect human remains, except in a laboratory under some very, very controlled conditions. Ground penetrating radar does not detect human remains. What it does is detects disturbances in the ground. And if those disturbances are consistent in size, shape, and depth of what we might be looking for, then the next step is to go ahead and excavate that area. I always tell law enforcement, if you want to do ground penetrating radar, we can do it. It's Primarily useful on hard surfaces such as concrete, asphalt, cement. There's good news and there's bad news. The good news is with ground penetrating radar, you will detect anomalies. The bad news is with ground penetrating radar, you will detect anomalies. We don't know what they are. So it sounds like you need to have someone who is uh, who has some experience in interpreting that. Is that does that sound right? But that that's correct, not only interpreting, but also taking that information and using it with other, with other data sets, such as vegetation, soil, moisture in the ground. What do we know that might have caused that anomaly? If, it's, if we're looking for an adult and we get a small anomaly, the chan- a small, maybe uh, two feet in diameter, that's not going to become a priority to look at. If we found an anomaly that's uh, eight feet in diameter, or eight feet and two, two or three feet wide, that might become a, a priority target. What about forward-looking infrared? Can you tell me about that? Certainly. It's called FLIR, F-L-I-R. The acronym stands for forward-looking infrared. The, uh, this is a, a technique that is based on two things. The reflection of heat from an object and... Well, that's what it's really based on. It's it's in the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, the way heat is reflected. You can map heat. Law enforcement typically uses this tool as a surveillance tool. 
For example, you've probably seen on TV where they're chasing a suspect. And if it's at night, that suspect would appear as a hotter item than the surrounding area. So they can follow him as he or she runs along. We use it as a detection tool. Once the ground is disturbed, if it's dug or otherwise, at the early evening after the sun's gone down, areas emanate heat from the sun. A disturbed area will emanate heat differently than a non-disturbed area. So again, that would give us some targets that we might want to follow up with something like ground-penetrating radar. When did you start using the, the FLIR technology? That would have been about 1987. NecroSearch was founded in 1987. Uh, mm-hmm. Two years prior to that, we were doing a number of experiments with pigs and uh, didn't realize the power of infrared technology until one of uh, an individual approached us and said, hey, I do surveys on buildings to determine heat leaks. But we also knew if you buried a, a uh, which was an organic substance in the decay process, it would release heat. The ground would also release heat. And we thought, well, maybe we can use it like that. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Oh, I see. Okay. okay. We, use it, we use it on a drone. We have other uh, handheld systems. Uh, oh, really? Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about like, can some of these technologies be used, say, if something is underwater? Ground penetrating radar can be used in fresh water. I used to say up to depths of about 50 feet. I think now it's probably progressed a bit. Again, fresh water. Uh, The nice thing about ground penetrating radar, as opposed to side scan sonar, side scan sonar will map the bottom of uh, of a lake, a river. Ground penetrating radar will map the bottom and it penetrate partially the bottom depending on the clay content so you get uh, you get some indication of anomalies within the sediments okay and you said this is for fresh water so it can't be used in right. salt water there are you know i think there's been experiments done to use ground penetrating radar and, and other systems uh, electromagnetic systems in in uh, salt water i'm not aware of how successful they've been Salt uh, is an you know it's an electrolyte when mixed with water, and uh, when you get into electromagnetic waves like radar, they uh, they tend to be masked by uh, clays and by electrolytes. So it's like in- interference or something right. like that. Yes, for okay. example, a number of years ago, I was asked to uh, map the uh, All American Canal. They were looking for a leak, and I said, "Well, we can we can tow radar behind a boat." And they said, well, that's crazy because the canal is clay lined. So, and we know you can't detect anything in clay or, you know, penetrate the clay. I said, precisely, if there's a leak, the clay will wash away. And that's really what we're looking for. So in that case, it's it's negative information that's very useful. I see. Okay. Now, in some of the reading I was doing, I was reading about a geophysical survey, which it, it, from what I read, it's that's kind of how this, how you start this sort of process. That's correct. And, and the geophysical survey detects anomalies in the subsurface. That is correct. Can you explain this? What, what does what does that mean? What what are these anomalies? Uh, what we're typically looking for are disturbances in the earth that may be consistent with somebody being buried, or we're looking for evidence. So it might be a pistol. It might be a bullet. We don't use radar for that. We get into very sophisticated metal detectors. But anything within the ground that was not there when the uh, when the ground was initially formed would become an anomaly. Anomaly just means a difference. But uh, we specialize in looking for, um, again, disturbances in the ground. Okay. And you can detect something as small as a bullet? Not with ground penetrating radar, but with a certain uh, type of metal detector, absolutely. We just did one. Uh, I can't talk about the case as such, but we found a board that, that is, uh, has led to a, a conviction. I think it's on appeal right now. And the bullet was about two or three inches deep. It doesn't sound like, you know, well, that's really difficult. 
but the area we had to work in was maybe 100 feet long, 50 feet wide, and it took us six hours to uh, thoroughly investigate that. Uh, dealing with metal detectors is uh, very, very uh, painstaking. I uh, I trained crews uh, in using metal detectors uh, when I was on the Cambodian border, and we were working on uh, looking for box mines on old roads and wooden box mines that only had a very small metal firing pin. So it's a uh, very tedious work. Okay, so then these these metal detectors—that's another form of the uh, remote sensing that that you've Absolutely. been using. When okay. we say remote sensing, what we're talking about is is looking at the earth and hopefully within the earth, but without doing anything to disturb the earth. Excavating an anomaly is not remote sensing, but finding that anomaly would be done by remote sensing. So I want to talk about the book that you published in uh, 2017. So this was called Remote Sensing Technology in Forensic Investigations. That's correct. And this was supposed to serve as an introduction to these remote sensing techniques. Well, that's that's true. It was not written as an academic tome. It was written specifically for one reason, and a and then there is a secondary reason. The one reason is to explain to law enforcement the capabilities and limitations of some of these techniques, how you run them in the field, how you would manage them in the field, how the data can be used, and how it would be presented in court. This is written in terms that law enforcement can understand. The second part of that is because it's in layman's term, I found out in testifying that it becomes easier for juries to understand. I, I take take a lot of pride in being able to, uh, I don't want to say educate judges and juries, but uh, talking to them in terms that they can understand that I don't have to get into all the details of ground penetrating radar other than they need to know it is a proven technique. In fact, one of the very early cases, 1994, the finding remains under concrete with a uh, with a radar survey. Let's say not finding remains, finding anomalies. We found three under a concrete slab. We prioritized them. There were reasons for two of them to be there. There was no reason for the third one. The third one was excavated, contained the remains of a woman that was murdered 28 years prior. That went wow. to court. That went to court. They got a conviction. It was upheld by the Supreme by the Superior Court in uh, Arizona, and that now is the precedent case for the use of ground penetrating radar in uh, in court cases. Wow, that's amazing. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Wow. When I uh, when I ran the survey, I, I did a calibration line, and the uh, officer, the detective I was with, he said I looked at him and said, "Wow, this is interesting. This this is where I would bury someone." And it turned out that after a full day's worth of work, that's where it was. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, that was sort of the reason why you you wrote this book then to to help educate law enforcement. Yes, sir. I've done a lot of uh, a lot of teaching, and uh, people, you know, they they don't know what happens is when someone gets used to some of these techniques, they then move up or move out, or and so you you're constantly within law enforcement educating the uh, the different commanders or the different detectives on what what is available to them that they don't have internally, but that they can, they can obtain locally or from groups like ours. I'm curious how, like, at what point did you decide, you know what, I, I need to write a book about, about these techniques that they would, this would be helpful to other people. And I really should do this. What, when, when did that happen? Well, it was probably about five years before I actually wrote it. <laughs> you get, <laughs> okay. you get very busy on this stuff, but I just, I finally sat down and said, this is stupid. I really have to do something. Uh, the publisher was very kind. I had an editor who was in England. Uh, it's, it's Taylor and Francis um, that uh, and there is there a subset of uh, CRC Press, which CRC Press is, I, in my mind, the premier uh, publishing house for uh, criminology, criminal justice, uh, these types of texts. What was your sort of process for writing? Like, did you have a, you know, I'm going to write so many pages per day or week or whatever. Did, did you have kind of 
a system like that? Yes, I try to set. I try to schedule time. Uh, I just finished, and it took six years. I just finished another book. Oh, back in November. It's nothing to do with law enforcement, but it took six years uh, working with a co-author and just setting time to to write and then to uh, have it edited, and it's it's quite a process. But um, I'm very pleased with it, with the uh, output of both of them. Now, yeah. thinking, now thinking on writing another one. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Well, it's fun. Yeah. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest Clark Davenport. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Clark Davenport on the People of Pathology podcast. All right. So you've mentioned a couple times already the, the group NecroSearch International. And you are one of the founding members of this group, which that is you correct. That okay, is correct. which you said formed in 1987. Right now, I read—I forget where it was—but I read the story of what sort of inspired the formation of this group. <laughs> Can you? It was—it was a police investigation with a with a backhoe or something. Well, actually, what it involved was that at that point I was working. Uh, out at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal here in Colorado, very, very uh, polluted area with chemicals and barrels and stuff. And the barrels were anywhere from 10 to 12 feet deep. And we were finding them using some of these techniques. One evening I was watching the news with my son, who uh, was a junior in high school. And so, you know, they know everything. And they showed right. uh, two sheriff's officers with metal detectors looking for barrels that supposedly contained bodies. The barrels were six to eight feet deep. And all I said to Sam was, those guys are stupid. You know, they're doing, they're doing the wrong thing. You can't use a metal detector. And his threat to me was, uh, dad, why don't you do something about that? So I went to my office the next morning and I called the sheriff's, uh, this is what I call it. Uh, the acronym is C is in Charlie, E is in Echo, D is in Dog, C-E-D, Career Ending Decision. I uh, okay. I called the sheriff's office and said, I need to speak to the sheriff. And they said, about what? And I wasn't going to try to explain any of this. I said, well, I have some information on those bodies. And you can guess the uh, immediate reaction, uh, people standing in front of my desk with badges and guns. and <laughs> Right. Went out with my son and spent three days uh, with the equipment I was using at the arsenal. And we did we did find barrels that were six eight feet deep. None of them had uh, none of them had any bodies in them, and that led to a, a, a question by someone from um, Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Well, you know what is this all about? And so I ended up giving the talk to them. And about a year later, uh, I was invited by three law enforcement people, myself and a, probably one of my dearest friends who's a geologist. Unfortunately, he didn't pass math. But um, <laughs> we, we, had, we had breakfast, and the idea was that how can we look for things like this? Is there a rational approach? What can we do? And the five of us decided that, uh, well, if we could bury something and you know go back in a week and two weeks and look at the changes, there you are. We obtained some land working with the sheriff's department. They had some some spare land, maybe 10 acres. And we got some pigs. We had three pigs, and we buried them. We went back, uh, I think it was 10 days later, and boy, that's when it hit. Two of the pigs were totally gone. And we stood there and scratched our heads and said, what is going on here? Noticed some animal tracks and said, well, who do we know that knows tracks? And we have now buried over 30 pigs, all different depths and types of uh, environments and, you know, really well mapped and controlled. 
And every time we do something like that, we ask ourselves more questions than the answers provided by what we've done. And that leads to, who do we know that? So right now, we have close to 50 members. We have uh, NecroSearch is a 501c3. It's nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We have members in I don't know how many states, but a number of states. A lot of us are based in Colorado. We have a training facility here. When we don't have the COVID, we offer a uh, training class for law enforcement. It's uh, it's limited to about 25. We have been self-funded. And as long as I am with the group, uh, we have never taken any money from the U.S. government, nor will we. We don't charge for anything we do other than our expenses. And we have worked in something like 45 states, nine foreign countries, 350 to almost 400 cases. And it has been absolutely an education that is incredible for me. Yeah, I can imagine. How do you get contacted when the law enforcement has a case and they want your group to come out and and assist them? How How does that work? That's a very good question because... Law enforcement is very, very skeptical of volunteers. And our initial impetus was, um, how are we going to get uh, credibility with these people? What are we going to do? Well, two of the five, no, three of the five members were law enforcement people, which helped. Myself and the geologists weren't. However, I was approached by the FBI to give a seminar back in New York to a a group of FBI um, agents. And I went and uh, gave a, a, a couple hour thing on this. And that led to being an invited instructor at the FBI Academy for a one week course where we brought in oh, six or seven different people from different specialties. We had a forensic botanist, cadaver dog specialist, a soils person, myself. And we did this for 10 years, uh, one week out of the 10 years for agents so they had an idea of, of what was available to them and in fact now and even then they had systems like ground penetrating radar but they were using them for something totally different and uh, once you do that once you start teaching at that level credibility comes along the process now is we have a standard questionnaire when we are asked we're asked by a number of people and we only respond to requests from law enforcement. It has to be a law enforcement case. We, uh, when contacted, we send out a questionnaire, maybe three or four pages long. The idea is, you know, you can fill this out. It gives us an idea of what you've done. And the agency is also invited to make a presentation to us on the specific case. We had live presentations from people from uh, Australia came over. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, just uh, there've been a couple others, uh, but a lot of it done is done now, of course, virtually. Like we just had, we meet once a month. If we, uh, if a presentation is made, or even if it's not, the questionnaire is circulated. We come up with suggestions, gives us an idea if they have done their homework or they're just wanting us to come in and do it for them. And okay, that's not our job. Our job is to provide services that they may need, but not organic to their uh, in, uh, their their group. How do you decide then if you're going to uh, be a part of the investigation or, or or not? Right. What has been done? What needs to be done? And we provide. You know, we can give them information on where you can get your local uh, weather records, where you can get your local some of your local remote sensing equipment. We can give them an idea of resources. We can also ask them questions. Uh, what we're dealing with now is this kind of neat. It's a, it's a case where a person was killed. They were driven out on a dirt road at night, and the body was disposed. You look at the moon during that night, the illumination of the moon was less than 2%. So you're saying, okay, what are you going to use for light other than a flashlight? probably the headlights of a car. So we're studying. We know the make and the model. In fact, the car is impounded now. 
And so I think it's in two weeks, we go up and do a whole headlight study to determine if that car is parked at this spot, what's the maximum cone of light that was available and trying to pick up a search footprint. I mean, these are things that people haven't really done before. Right. I never would have even thought of that. Well, this is it. We we have people in there that are they're incredible people. And the questions they come up with at first, you say, what the heck? And then you say, oh, wait a minute. That's something. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, I had a meeting today on a case that goes back to 1941. And this is in, well, it's in a southern state. And uh, there's some very interesting questions that we were able to ask, you know, the, the way into the site. Well, it was a dirt track back then. Okay. What was the weather like? Well, why do you need to know that? Well, you know what the vehicle was that hauled the body out there. Could they have gotten on that road if it was muddy, if it rained the day before, the day or the day after, whatever. So we just, we try to cover all the bases. I, it does sound like there is quite a bit of math involved. There, well, it's, it's, yes, there is, but there's also there's some interesting, uh, th- th- when it gets, what gets really interesting we have an idea that if 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 I was to uh, kill someone and put them in my car, we have an idea of how long I would drive to get away. I would drive more than so many minutes and no longer than so many minutes. And there's a number that behavioral science comes in here. And so if you know that you know the weather, the type of car, the environment, was it traffic heavy? Was it at night? What was the light like? Uh, you can start mapping search areas or, or search footprints, if you wish, just using stuff like that. And that's, I, I, we just, we love this stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, you mentioned the mapping search area. So from what I understand, a lot of the work that you do is to sort of narrow down the search area and kind of limit the amount of time that's needed to, to, to do searches, which used to take, you know, quite a bit of time. Is that, is that sound accurate? In, yeah. In general, that's accurate. Uh, the, the typical search is line everybody up, you know, shoulder to shoulder or whatever in, in March. And if you're doing that, if you're on a crime scene, you have destroyed the crime scene. If you do find anything, uh, we like to go from non non-intrusive, again, aerial photographs, any information we can put together, even looking using infrared to look at vegetation, disturbed vegetation, because disturbed vegetation reflects light differently than fresh vegetation. And so we can get an idea, well, that area is disturbed. I wonder why. And so when we finally go in with cadaver dogs or whatever, we have an idea of where to look. Uh, I made a I made a big mistake. Oh gosh, a number of years ago, I've made many mistakes, but this was uh, this was a true learning lesson. Working on a forest area at night, and uh, finding out that at that site, even though there was no light, there was enough light at two o'clock in the morning to see my bat or my identification. So the next day, I uh, I sent teams out. First team that went out, we'd done the area photo work. So the first team that went out or the cadaver dog people. And I gave them a roll of red tape or whatever. And I said, if your dog finds anything, I want you to flag that area with this tape. And when they came back, I sent out the botanist, the, who looks at the vegetation. And the same thing, green tape. So they, they would flag areas with green tape. And then you send out the, the soils person or the geologist and a different colored tape. There were five different colors of tape involved. And I thought, this is great, you know. We've got, if I've got an area with five different colored tapes, that's a prime area. Mm-hmm. Well, that's foolish. Because what I had done was unintentionally biased everyone to the first group that went in. The dog handler had tape hanging, and the, veg- the, the uh, biologists, the botanists would go in and say, oh, they saw something over there. I'll go, oh, yeah, I see what. So, uh, Oh, I see. Okay. So now when we do that, they go out with uh, GPS. They come back and we put it on the computer. The other teams don't see it and off they go. That's more realistic in the way of picking areas. We also had a case in the Missouri River where uh, two bodies were dismembered and dumped. It was a year apart. And uh, we were asked to come in uh, three or four years later 
could we establish a footprint? And uh, we knew where the bodies were dumped from a boat in the river, both uh, both pretty much the same area. So what we did is we got pigs, and they were dismembered and put into sacks, just like the bodies were, uh, weighted as what we understood the bodies were. And then pigs and bags went down the river. And over a period of a month, the local sheriff's department would go out because we put transmitters in these bags. And they were able to map where those different parts went and establish a footprint, knowing the river flow and a, a number of other things from the Corps of Engineers. So that's kind of how we work. This is really interesting. You mentioned a little bit earlier the, the teaching at the FBI Academy. Did the FBI ever try to recruit you or, or any of the other members of NecroSearch? Like, you know, we, we probably could use your skills. Why don't you, you know, why don't you join us? Anything like that? Uh, to my knowledge, no one in the group has been recruited or even attempted to have been recruited by the FBI. About one-third of NecroSearch, I would say one-third, maybe a quarter, are sworn law enforcement agents. And that's, oh, okay. that's good because there are things that they can talk to the the requesting party, and then they can talk to us, but they don't tell us everything that they tell us what we need to know, but not everything that law enforcement knows, so that we're not biased. Mm-hmm. I uh, I volunteer now at uh, two days a week, well, not with COVID right now, but at the sheriff's office, the local sheriff, and I do cold case analysis, which which I like because that's uh, it's puzzles. So one third, one one third of NecroSearch people are are uh, law enforcement. One third are probably academic, and one third are people like myself that sit in the back row of the classroom. Okay, um, you you were also an instructor at the Colorado Law Enforcement Training Academy. Was that a similar experience to what you did with the FBI? Uh, yeah, not quite as formal. Uh, these were for local people in Colorado. And that that has now been uh, turned over to another group. I also uh, I, I taught oh, for I don't know eight or nine years at Regis University, a Jesuit university. I teach uh, adult adult education for uh, criminalistics, uh, which is the what does evidence mean? Uh, well, for example, the first class, these uh, students would get a windshield with nine bullet holes in it, and uh, I would just say I'd like to know were those bullets shot into this car or out or from the car out and in what order. Uh, and of course that that promotes uh, you had good teamwork there, people trying to figure that out. And uh, that became their final exam, by the way, to see if if I taught them anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I, well, I, I love hands-on stuff. So what was the, what was the pass rate on that kind of thing? Uh, they all passed. Believe okay. me. I mean, if they're, they're working 40 hours a week and they're, they're coming to class, uh, and they're sitting in a classroom and they're small classes, 12, 15. Yeah. They're, they're interested. Believe me. They're not, they're not there to take the easy, easy classes. And, uh, we, and then we'd give them actual, or I would give them actual cases that had gone through the appeal process and exhausted all appeals. So. Can you tell me about the, the trips that you made to Russia? Because I was reading about this, and this is this is fascinating. <laughs> NecroSearch got asked early on to. This is when uh, the Czar and his family were murdered in 1911. I mm-hmm. think that's right. This is when Czar Nicholas, right? Czar Nicholas, and um, the remains had not been found. They were, in fact, found in the 70s, but covered up because uh, there's a lot of politics and a lot of church stuff going on. Uh, They were rediscovered by the same individual in the 1990s, right after uh, the Berlin Wall came down and communism fell. At that time, and and Anastasia is part of it, but NecroSearch was asked to send some people over uh, specifically one of our forensic anthropologists and a geologist to give our opinion of uh, are these the bodies of uh, the uh, the Romanov family. 
And the two people that went over did a, did a good job, extremely professional, but they came back very disillusioned. I was totally opposed to having anything to do with Russia. And the reason they were disillusioned was the politics. They, the interpreter was uh, the scientist that found them was it was his wife, and they would ask a question, and she would tell them, well, "You you can't ask him that. That's uh, that's beneath him. That type of thing." Well, then we were asked a number of years later, in fact, 2013, if anybody would be interested in going. And I said, you know, I heard these stories and they didn't sound good. I'd like to go and see for myself. And this adventure involved looking for the remains of Michael Romanov, who was the czar's brother. And depending on who you listen to, uh, was in fact for 24 hours the last czar of Russia. His brother, Tsar Nicholas, would not abdicate to his son, Alexei, because Alexei had hemophilia. And so he abdicated to his brother. At 24 hours later, the brother was uh, taken to a, uh, a number of places and ended up in a city called Perm, P-E-R-M. And if there are any geologists listening, that is the type location for the Permian Formation. It's a uh, it's a very nice city. It's a beautiful area. It's right within 30, 40 miles from the foothills of the Urals. And he was he was eventually with his secretary. Now his secretary's name was Brian Johnson. Although now they say it's Nicholas Johnson. His secretary was a British citizen who went through the military academy with Michael. And uh, when they came and took Michael, this was about 11 o'clock at night, Brian said, hey, I'm going with you. Long story short, they were both taken to an area. They were killed. And we've been looking for the bodies for a number of years, the remains for a number of years. It's 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 history, and I love history. And this, uh, I've been there seven times. I did not go this year because of COVID. I'm scheduled to go back in August or September. We work we work the FSB, which is uh, as you may know the old KBG. So we work with their law enforcement people, which has led to some interesting times. Um, it's been quite a search. I mean, we have used everything. We've had people from NecroSearch. We've had a forensic botanist there. We have a retired police officer who runs the basic program. We had a uh, cadaver dog uh, and a handler out of the UK because Brian Johnson was, in fact, a, a, a British citizen. His uh, mother was uh, Russian. His father was British. We've done magnetics, electromagnetics, ground penetrating radar. We've also been training the Russians on how to do this too. And they are developing a, hopefully they say, a unit very similar to NecroSearch. And we're providing, that's what you call transfer technology. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been quite an experience. I have enjoyed almost every moment of it. Uh, when you come into your the first first year you come into your hotel room and uh, there's a cigarette butt on the counter and I don't smoke uh, I, that's a message you know we we know you're here and we want you to know we're here and uh, I see okay that that led a number of years later to a, a midnight rendezvous at the FSB's uh, oh, at the FSB's office that uh, I'm just thankful I'm still here <laughs> wow yeah but. You know, you never know. And in this case, I refer to this effort. I mean, we're finding things. Some of it may be evidentiary. We found a number of bullets. We found some other things that may or may not fit the case. But it's uh, what I call the body ID team. ID not standing for identification, standing for increasing desperation. (laughs) Because we'll work for a week, and then all of a sudden they'll come up with, oh, wait a minute. We heard from so-and-so that it might be over there. So that's where we should look. You know, totally, we've laid plans for a year's work, and now we're off looking for tunnels and, and uh, madness. And, oh, my word, that's, it's something else. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. Yeah. So a- any chance there, there might be a, a book to come out of this experience? There will be. My son, uh, Sam, the one that um, got me into this, is a, is, a, is a lawyer. He's a litigator. Okay. He, and he's in Massachusetts. My other son is a um, photojournalist. He's represented by National Geographic, and uh, he helped me with our second book. And I really think that this would be a very interesting case because you have politics, you have religion, and you have crime. And it mm-hmm. doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, right. So we'll see. I'll keep you posted on that. <laughs> yes, yes, please do. Please do. Okay. All right. So last question then. If someone were interested in a career as a forensic geophysicist, what, what advice would you have for them? I, yeah, I'll give you that in just a second. As far as I know, I'm the only person that is a forensic geophysicist, and that's because I've titled myself as that. Okay. I, have, I have a degree in geophysical engineering, and I also have a degree in criminal justice. And what I would suggest, if someone's interested in a career in forensic geophysics, first to take your geophysics, maybe in a shallow sense, you know, geophysics for archaeology, something along those lines, and then follow it up with some sort of degree in either criminalistics, which is the the detection and analysis of evidence, or criminology, which is the, the what, what, what makes people become criminals, how do they think like that, and what makes people become victims. You put those two together because, you know, as, as a geophysicist, once I'm on a crime scene, and if I'm under, if they've gone in under a warrant, I could be in contempt of court if I did anything. For example, you can only run radar in this area. And then some uh, some officers say, oh, look, that area over there. So you go over and do it over there. Right there, I'm in contempt of court because I have done something outside of their warrant. So you have to understand the legal issues that are involved. You have to understand that if you're going to be doing this type of work, and I hope I hope people are interested you're going to end up testifying in court. Scientists mm-hmm. make absolutely terrible, terrible witnesses in court unless you can explain things in terms that juries and judges can understand. So again, something in the in the in the some sort of degree in shallow geophysics, it might even be archaeology using geophysics, and then uh, something in the legal aspect of criminalistics or criminology i put a i put together a field camp a number of years ago and um, people from the colorado school of mines that needed a a two-week field camp and people from the colorado state university that needed a two-week field camp the people from the school of mines were geophysicists and the people from uh, colorado state university were, were archaeology students so the first week everything was done in geophysics mapping anomalies and the second week was everybody excavated those anomalies, and it was absolutely—it uh, was incredible, absolutely incredible. Students loved it. So this is the type of thing that you know, it's—it's it's a wonderful field. It, with me, it's a passion. You know, money's not an issue, but it's a passion, and right. uh, solving solving crime. And when you get into the historical stuff now, it's just—I uh, love it. Yeah, I, I can definitely hear the, uh, the the passion in your voice for sure. Sure. Well, and the motto I live by is basically, in the United States, there's no statute of limitations on murder. There is no statute of limitations on grief. Helping families and relatives come to closure is it's hard to explain. Something, something I saw in 1966, 67. I saw what people could do to people in a war. Right. And I made it. I made a, a, a sincere effort to come back and to try to help society. And and I hope I hope we've done it. Yes, I I think you are, Clark. This has been so interesting. I I, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, telling your story. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, and you got some great questions. Big thanks to Clark Davenport. This one was really interesting, and so I'm really glad he could find the time to speak with me. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Gina Bond. So you're directly working with the the medical students. You're you're teaching them dissection yeah. techniques. Is that is that right? 
Yeah, so um, in our lab, we teach first year medical students, but we also teach second and third year biomedical scientists, first year dental students, human osteologists, physicians associates. We also have speech scientists and orthoptic students in. Oh, wow. We okay. sometimes get some bioengineers bio come in as well. Um, so I think it works out as about close to 700 students a week will come in our lab and we'll either do full body cadaveric dissection or we'll look at specimens to do some anatomy study. Um, so it's a wide variety of courses and they all want something different and it's great though to see all those students get excited by anatomy. I love it when they finally work something out. Oh, um, yeah. It's, you know, because at the start it will be me being, oh look, look at that nerve, can you see it? Look how amazing that looks or, you know, oh wow, that muscle looks fantastic and they'll just look at me like you're crazy and then give it a few weeks and, you know, they'll tell, Gina, look what I've found. And it's, it's great. That's, I love that part of it. You can hear more from Gina Bond in episode number 27. You know, Clark's story is another example of taking two seemingly unrelated fields and combining them together and creating something new and pretty interesting at that. And now he's able to take something that he's really passionate about and he uses that to help people and help the families through his work with NecroSearch International. You can find links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. And remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. This week is Medical Laboratory Professionals Week here in the U.S., so happy Lab Week to all of my colleagues out there. And actually, it was Lab Week last week in Canada, so a happy belated Lab Week to all of you. And for those of you outside of North America, I wonder, do you have Lab Week in your country? Send me an email, peopleofpathology at gmail.com, and let me know. And if you like this episode and you know someone who might be interested in this field, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.